Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers podcast with your hosts, Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics revolving around health, nutrition, and physical fitness. If you enjoy the show and wish to support us, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon but still wish to support us, please also consider checking out our PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPOpod. The link to both of those can also be found in the show notes. Finally, please consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Now, on to the next topic. Zach, we were recording now. Yep, I just put us up. It's Mihaela. Is that how? Mihaela. Yes, Mihaela, yes, Mihaela. Telecon, and what, and what is that name? Where are you from? Romania. Romania. Oh, nice. Yes. yes so, yes. are you in Romania now? No, I'm in Florida. Florida. For okay, so there's years. so no vampires or nothing running. running Not around. anymore. I'm from Transylvania, <laughs> though. <laughs> I made Transylvania. This joke. Very nice. <laughs> Every time hey. I speak, I make this joke. <laughs> <laughs> Some people can put me on the map because everybody knows about Transylvania. Yeah, Romania is a vampire, right? That's right. Yes, Got yes. To... I, I turned it. into one <laughs> <laughs> if I wasn't before. Well, we did have a guest on not too long ago who has drank blood, so uh, <laughs> we may yeah. just be moving right along. Oh, that was uh, Darren Schmidt. Yeah, he was drinking some blood, wasn't he? Yeah, he kind of... Or Bill, Bill Schindler, I think. Bill Schindler. Maybe Darren, yeah, Darren yeah, yeah. may have as well. I don't know. But. And Darren Smith drank blood and, and Bill Schindler drank blood. And I think probably Andrew Graff drinks blood too. And, and Sverage, I think, drank, drank blood as well. So we got a lot of blood drinkers on this podcast. <laughs> we, 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 we probably got about 15% of our guests are, are vampires. Let's see. Wow. Well, yeah. you know, it's interesting because in Romania, we do have uh, some recipes when they make sausages, Romania and yeah. Hungary where they put blood in it. Sure, yeah, blood my sausage, family, so. yeah, my family never made those recipes, but uh, yeah, it's, it's not uncommon, like traditionally for people to to go for blood. <laughs> yeah, I don't think, I think that's true. Well, I mean, I know it's true, there's blood. And when I was in Africa, when I was down in, in Kenya, Tanzania, and I ran into some of the Maasai, they, they had their little jug of blood, blood and curdled milk, and they offered me some. It just didn't look good. I, I, I opted not to have some back then. Maybe yeah. I Maybe today I might try it, but I, I don't know. Back then I wasn't really interested in it. So, hey, um, so how long have you been in the U.S.? How long have you been in the U.S.? 19 years. And, 19 years. And 2000, yeah, I came in 2000 and March. Okay. So, and all the time in Florida. So I must say, I love Florida. <laughs> Florida, yeah. <it's, laughs> I don't miss the winter of Romania. Yeah, what, what, yeah, how cold is it in Romania? Because Romania is still relatively south in Europe. It's not that far. No, no, it's cold. It's kind of like New York, yeah. at least where I'm coming from, because Transylvania is like surrounded by mountains. Okay. It's pretty yeah. cold, pretty long winters with, you know, gray sky and um, like that damp weather. Yeah, it yeah. seems like all the movies, the vampire movies, always look like it's cold and rainy and, you know. Yeah, they have quite, <laughs> quite a bit of that. That's where I get all my knowledge from vampire movies, you know, it's kind of <laughs> kind of funny. But no, I guess Romania would be, I mean, Romania's got some, you know, as, as you, obviously, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a big meat eater guy. And I think Romania has a pretty big meat eating population and culture there. And I think they still have pretty good value on their meat, kind of like Poland. I guess I saw Poland, Romania have some of the... The, the most affordable meat in the in the in the country at least on an overall dollar amount now depends on the population wealth but uh, yes tell me um tell me a little bit what do you do these days what is your what is your sort of thing you do these days i function i would say as a coach yeah i'm a registered dietitian but i really don't um, identify with the teachings and all that so um i coach people and um i would say i focus a lot on metabolic health yeah inflammation autoimmunity and of course weight loss comes as a consequence of that i mainly work work with women okay yeah. And, and so you said you're, you're, you, you said you you kind of have a registered dietitian. So did you have some formal registered dietitian training? Uh, and oh, yeah. All that stuff. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, when I moved from Romania, I was a vet. 
I studied veterinary. veterinary medicine, okay. yes, in Romania, and I worked as a vet. However, my passion was not into veterinary medicine. So when I came was one chance for me to, I knew I wanted to, I wanted to go back to school, but I didn't want to go back to veterinary medicine to get all my, you know, my boards and licenses and so on, all that. So um, I went and I studied human nutrition. I did a master's in nutrition with an internship in dietetics. So I, then I sat for the registration exam and I did work for Jackson Memorial Hospital in uh, Miami as a luckily outpatient dietitian, which was a little bit better, you know, primary care doctor would send their patients uh, to me. That forced me into studying uh, for CDE because of the amount of people with diabetes. So I did get my CD in which I, I keep. Uh, so I'm maintaining all my licenses as a dietitian and diabetes educator. But in parallel with that, I did studies. I studied with the Institute for Functional Medicine, Mind-Body Medicine. Then I did the coaching certification with the Institute of Integrative Nutrition in New York. And after I had my son, I just realized that um, I didn't want to go and work in, in the system in my mind, there are dietitians that, yeah, when they do tube feedings and TPNs, okay, I see the value, I commend them. It was not the reason I went into nutrition. I wanted to be in nutrition to help people prevent from getting sick because we can do so much with food and lifestyle. So I just opened, opened my private practice and ever since then I'm I'm working as my son is growing and spends more time in school. I'm growing the number of hours I work. And, and I coach. Basically, I do coaching over diet instructions. I would take people on a journey of three months where we together we work. It's a lot of mindset work that uh, I, I find myself having to do more than the actual education. Most people know, you know what, what they should or not eat. You know, at least general, don't eat processed food, you know, genetically modified, all of that. But then when it comes to implementing, it's so difficult because of the way they think about food. Food is so much associated with pleasure in life. It's like almost the, the only thing that brings pleasure to people. And so much peer pressure and social... Yeah, you that's really interesting. I was just going to kind of follow up with a question too, because you differentiated between kind of like the nutrition planning or the dietitian side of things and the coaching side. It, what would you describe as the biggest difference between those two is like the coaching side, you're, you're focusing more on kind of like the holistic nature of relationship with food versus just kind of programming. This is what you should eat and this is when you should eat it. Pretty much. I can, I can speak from both perspectives. When I worked as a dietitian, I would well, listen very little to what people do, but I would give them a list, a meal plan. Eat this, not that. Well, as a coach, I feel like it's not my business to tell anybody what to eat. My business is to ask questions, to help them think, and for them to to gather the information they need so they make a choice mm -hmm. that then leads to their why. Why would you, oh, what should I eat? Well, first my question is why would you change anything? So if we know the why, then we can get there by our own will. Because if, if I tell you to do something because I just think it's good for you, but you don't own that decision. It's like holding your breath. Yeah, you can do it for a little bit, but it's non-sustainable. So my work is helping people change default thinking. So by default, they act differently. And that pretty much. Yeah, you know, that's, that's really interesting to hear because I remember when I went through education for teaching, one thing that we talked about a lot was when you're working with, with the children or, or, or anyone, just like interactions with humans in general, if you go about it in a way where you're like, this is what you have to do, now do it, 
that doesn't always end out with the outcome that you want. Whereas when you kind of say, well, here's some things that, or here's some potential choices you could make based on this situation. This result likely ends up like this, this one like this, this one like this, and this is why. And it is pretty surprising how often when people are kind of given that like choice consequence or choice reward framework, they tend to kind of gravitate towards what is going to be in their best interest when they kind of have all that information versus just kind of this uh, surface level like reaction where it's like, oh, this person just told me I have to do this. Therefore, I'm going to go do something different or, you know, like yes. respond in a way that's more kind of emotional or. Yes, it's, it's a process. First, we have to raise the awareness. Are you even aware how the body uses food as fuel? for example, and then empower them with knowledge. Give them some, some evidence and, and help them see, um, understand, I would say, how the body works. And then give them the opportunity to make a choice. So that, that's the take, taking action because if we just have the awareness and the knowledge but we don't act on it, then it's pretty much useless. <laughs> Yeah, I, I like what you said about the fact that, you know, people are eating not for nutritional reasons, but they're eating for reasons outside of nutrition, which may be, you know, uh, entertainment boredom, uh, coping mechanisms, societal pressures, you know, uh, all kinds of reasons why we eat, which have nothing really to do with human nutrition at all. And I think that's a, a big sort of disconnect that many people have. And certainly the food industry has capitalized on that. And we have this sort of you know, nonstop snacking, you know, food at every single possible interaction that you can have. I mean, you go to the gas, you know, you go to the, I go to the dump to take stuff and they, they're, they're handing out candy to, you know, or food for your dogs or, I mean, it's, yeah. it's just, it's everywhere. You know, you go to, to the doctor's office and there's candy on the way out. Or, I mean, my goodness, it's at the bank, you know, it's just, it's just, it's everywhere. And it's kind of, it's kind of crazy. Um, so you, um, my understanding is that your sort of current personal dietary practice, and, and I don't know what you're telling your clients, but your personal dietary practice might be in contrast with what you train and learn as a registered dietitian. Big time. Let's, let's, let's get into that a little bit. <laughs> I would say when I was learning to become a dietitian, I was raw vegan, <laughs> which, was, which was not in line with, with the teaching. And now... When in my current life situation, I'm actually embracing the carnivore uh, eating style. Uh, and that's simply because it's finally resolved my lifelong chronic constipation. So this is pretty much what brought me, I'm trying to try to make it short story, what brought me on this healing with Puss journey and took me from trying every high fiber diet possible with the exclusion of all animal foods, all the way to coming like 180 degree to carnivore. When I was 20 years old, I was diagnosed with megacolon and the solution offered was colon resection to make it normal human size. Yeah, peristaltism is slow, but you know, if you operate, you should be fine. It didn't sit well with me. So that's when I began to be interested in food, how food affects my body. So from there, I went and I tried all those diets, as I mentioned. None of them did made a dent in my constipation. So I, oh, and I did not want to take drugs like laxatives. I knew the long-term consequences of being on, on a drug to manage a chronic condition. So I did all sorts of things, including daily enemas, not to take uh, medications or even stimulants like tea, Sena tea, or any other more natural considered laxatives and very interesting I, I didn't even think of the possibility of eliminating all plant matter so trying for so many years 20 years trying something and not getting results and yet not thinking at this other extreme way of eating because vegan is an extreme way of eating uh, so Eventually, when I was pregnant with my son, uh, despite the fact that I was lean, but being vegetarian at the time, I did not pass the diabetes screen for um, 
gestational diabetes on the 28th week of pregnancy. And that was like a major wake up call for me. How can I be lean and active and be gestational diabetic? Now it makes sense because I was living on fruits and nuts and whole grains, you know, all the good uh, whole foods that are heavily promoted as super human food. Um, so thank God I found out about the GAPS nutritional protocol. So seven years ago, I was, that's it, plant diet did not work for me. I'm going to try the GAPS nutritional protocol to heal the gut, which indeed I, it helped tremendously. So up to last year, I was having bowel movements managed with high dose of magnesium and vitamin C. Last year in August, a friend of mine tells me about the carnivore. She said, I'm trying carnivore for my back pain. I said, are you crazy? This can't be. I hear about carnivore, but that's way too much. How can you eat only meat? Long story short, since August until November, I kept like talking about awareness and educating. I kept educating myself. I started following you and other uh, like Michaela Patterson, looking at people that have been doing it and what the results were. And then looking again, going back to my vet school and like, yeah, for sure we are not herbivores by anyone's stretch of imagination. So, and yes, we, carbs are not essential. So I started to convince myself basically, yeah, carbs are not essential. Fiber probably is the cause of my constipation in this case. And I'm going to just let go of all plants. So since November last year, I started my first carnivore experiment. And after five, and I, I did not take magnesium. I did not take uh, vitamin C. I just let my bowel work, be. So after five days of no plans, I started to have bowel movements. I was happy, needless to say, that finally, after 27 years, I have a solution. I mean, it's like, it was mind-blowing. At the same time, I was pissed off with myself, with the system, with the education. Why are we pushing plants and fiber? Like, these are the superfoods for us. Why can't we really look like biologically what kind of an animal are we what did we do before like what how people evolved on earth when we had no convenience of supermarkets no uh, guidelines from the government no evidence-based anything it was just intuitive eating so eating and breathing this is how i look at it our bodily functions that are pre-programmed right and each one serves a purpose. We breathe automatically. We don't have to put conscious thoughts into how often we breathe, how deep, how much we exhale, how much we inhale, none of that. We don't worry about the air composition, nothing, right? When it comes to eating, which should meet our biological need for nutrients and fuel, we got it all complicated and messed up. So, yes, I am, I am a, a little bit, disappointed and that's why I say we should not tell I, I, I have no right to tell anybody what to eat if what you're doing is working for you go with it if you have incredible energy you're aging beautifully you have health whatever you're doing is working if you struggle at any level reevaluate food and lifestyle but food uh, in this case because you are what you eat digest and absorb so for me personally uh, eliminating all plant matter resolved a situation that I was told it can't be resolved unless I have surgery. So, of course, I, I endorse. I, I embrace and I endorse with the... Uh, I won't say that uh, I go and everybody that comes to work with me, I would bring carnivore out. But it does come, it come on the journey of healing with foods. There are... It's a point where I will bring it up. If, if we do changes, letting go of processed foods, reducing carb, because that's another thing, you know, metabolic health and the amount of carbohydrates we are pushing on people. And, and the person does not get the results. Uh, if it's autoimmunity, allergies, severe gut health, yeah, carnivore comes up in my, uh, in my practice. Now for a word from our sponsors. 
All right, folks, this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast is brought to you by ButcherBox. ButcherBox offers you convenience by delivering your meat right to your door with free shipping. They also offer quality by having options such as 100% grass-fed and grass-finished beef, heritage breed pork, and free-range chicken. They also offer value with their goal to make clean meat accessible to as many people as possible by partnering with a collective of small farms. They are able to deliver you the best products for less than $6 per meal. They often run promos on their website for subscribers to get things like free pork or free bacon. If you enter promo code HPO at checkout, you can also knock an additional $20 off your first subscription. So head over to butcherbox.com and place your first order. Now back to the show. Yeah, what you said is really interesting because I think it highlights a lot of stuff that we've kind of talked about or some things that have kind of more or less rolled out in the the public conversation over the last couple of years uh, in regards to the carnivore diet. And the thing I find really interesting is like if we go – and look at kind of the skeptic side of things where the people who are skeptical of a variety of ranges of like a carnivore way of eating, you kind of range from like the folks who will say, this is absolutely absurd, uh, has zero reason to have a, a, a discussion about it, uh, doesn't deserve a seat at the table. We need to shout down the people who advocate for it. That's kind of the extreme end of the skeptics. And then there's the skeptics who are more or less, or at least the way I see them, a little more like, okay, here's what we know right now. Um, it seems like based on some of these anecdotes that people are, are finding a way to get success or get results through this carnivore way of eating. And they can attribute to a variety of things like uh, they're eating within a calorie balance or deficit now where they weren't before, or they're giving their digestion system a break because they're just eliminating so many potential triggers to their digestive system when they're going down to just kind of meat, water, and salt. And they look at it kind of like, okay, here's like potentially a a solution in the short term, but ultimately the long-term move is to start kind of reincorporating other things based on what we know today. Do you feel like you fall within any of those ranges or do you feel you're further along to the other side where like, uh, you know, this is something we should look at as a way of eating long-term. And there's some people who are just going to thrive without any vegetable matter, likely little to no fiber at all in their diet for the long-term or more as here's something we need to kind of get you back to square one. And then where you go from there is up to you in terms of what you want to kind of experiment with. Great question. I think uh, the later is um, the one that would resonate best or more with most of my clients, the people I personally work with. Um, and going from moving from being raw vegan, and, and it's something interesting when you are vegan, you have a, like a very different way of thinking. You are like almost religious about food. I, I remember used, I used to ask, oh, did you cook meat on the grill? Like somehow meat was dirty and I didn't want meat to touch my food. So I've, I was very strict. And now uh, when I'm on the other extreme, for one thing I learned never to be that strict because it's just not a healthy mindset. So I have more of an open approach. And, and when I talk to people about this, I, I say the carnivore is the ultimate elimination diet. You have autoimmunity, you have inflammation, you have gut health, uh, depression, whatever the reason is. And we've tried so much, but we did not get to where we know you can be. Are you open or willing to give this a chance? 10 days, 10 days works. If you feel, and it's always like Dr. Um, Sean said, or Dr. Baker said, and uh, at one point, people are disconnected. We are disconnected from our food, um, from our body, and we are unable to receive the messages. So when we, so how do we receive messages from the body? One is to, like you're saying, to eliminate all these triggers. And nevertheless, 
plant matter comes with triggers, not only the fiber, it's all the, the anti-nutrients, the oxalates, the lectins, the gluten, so many, so many, um, so they are called phytonutrients, I, I call them phytochemicals that cause insult in the amounts we are eating today they do trigger the immune system. So if the person is already uh, immune compromised, it is beneficial to clean up the plate, to give a rest to the immune system. So the immune system doesn't have constantly to fight against food particles that enter the bloodstream and that in conjunction with the leaky gut. So it, it, it helps both. It helps heal and seal the gut lining, rebuild the immune system, and then uh then the 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 road the journey unfolds some people are like wow i feel so good i don't even want to go back so we don't even have to talk about what after after reveals itself but we go with an open mind and we we start as an experiment you have to become your own uh, investigator you have to to be an observant of your life i tell people watch yourself with curiosity imagine that you are watching a documentary about someone trying this crazy thing and just observe your body like an outsider and be willing to draw conclusions without having a preset oh this can be i can't do this for for the rest of your life there's nothing we can't do for the rest of our lives if we have the results. It's, it's like, what do I want? I want to be constipated and take medications and maybe have, I don't know, colon cancer or diverticulitis. I don't know what down the road. So I can eat broccoli and Brussels sprouts, which I used to love. Well, probably I love them even now if I was to eat them. No, it's not worth it. So then like the whole entire thinking pattern changes and it just becomes easier with time as we receive the feedback. If the person doesn't have any benefit by trying, then automatically they will not have a positive feedback to continue with them. Does this answer the question? Yeah, no. And I think it, it really does highlight just the variety of experiences that you can see on, on any pay, way of eating, I guess. And uh, the thing I always find interesting too is like, there does seem to be this uh, kind of natural or like impulse for someone to think, oh, this worked perfectly for me, therefore it will work for everyone. Or someone watching someone else doing something says, this is what happened to them. And sometimes it's a real detailed timeline too. Like, but yes. I, think, I think of like the ketogenic diet in this too, where it's like, well, after 30 days, your energies will come back and then you'll start thriving and this, that, and the other thing, or the keto flu or any of this other stuff. Uh, and then people see that and they think, okay, there's the blueprint, there's the timeline. I'm going to get that exact same situation if I do it. And then they do it and they get a different feedback loop and they're wondering, well, what's, what's wrong with me? Or what, what did this person, did this person lie to me? Or did this person do it differently? And, or where, where, where were the mistakes made? And in reality, it may have just been like, you know, for them personally, that specific roadmap wasn't necessarily the same as the person they saw do it or their friend's experience was like. Yes, and, and sometimes uh, for, for a good length of time, you can feel good by doing something that long-term is not good. So in my case with carnivore, I'm, I'm saying right now I feel fantastic. If five years from now or a year from now, I don't, I'm willing to reevaluate. It's not like it's written in stones. I understand how I get my nutrients. Uh, I monitor, again, my energy, my sleep, my skin, my bowels, all of that. And I go from day to day. And occasionally, do I have plants? Yes. I would say I'm 90%. But uh, again, it has to be a flexible mindset and an, a willingness to to learn from and receive the feedback from the body as, mm -hmm. as we move through. Yeah, I think, Mahela, I think that's a, a really nice way to, to put that. And that's what I, you know, I do a lot of consultations with people that I, that I help with diet too and, and nutrition and fitness and whatever else. 
And I do find it's about finding what's going to work for you ultimately. And there's no dogma attached to this, you know, and I, I, I you know, and, and I, eat, you know, 99.9% of my stuff is coming from, from basically meat, eggs, seafood, a little bit of dairy, and there'll be some spices occasionally. And, and, and so I, I'm, I'm, you know, very much that works well for me, but it, it works for me. And that's what I like to do. And I perform well and feel well and happy to be in my fifties doing, doing well. And I think that's, that's uh, a very important point that it's based upon, you know, let's, let's just make the assumption that our, the field of nutrition is, is sort of uh, not really, you know, the, the data that we've obtained is, is not really great science. I mean, it's just, it's just really hard to, to really determine what's going to make someone live to be a hundred or be free of disease at 80 or 90. I mean, we just can't do that. I mean, it's, it's, it's well, I mean, we could, but it's ethically and cost prohibitive to actually do that. So we'll probably never do those things. So we have to sort of say, maybe instead of like, you know, picking through these population epidemiology studies, which, which are just, you know, inextricably confounded, maybe we should look what helps, what helps us individually and yes. look what makes us perform well and feel well. And I think that's really a very reasonable predictor of how you're going to do, you know, tomorrow and the next day is how you're doing today. And if you've gotten rid of your chronic constipation or whatever it is, psoriasis, depression, huh. diet, then probably that's a pretty reasonable approach. And I think that's, that's kind of what we're trying to get at here. And I'm glad yeah. to see more people are realizing that they're taking an open mind, whether it's raw vegan, whether it's uh, carnivore, whether it's Mediterranean diet or whatever, you know, but, but being open-minded to say that there are different things that work for a variety of people. And I think this uh, demonization and meat that's gone on, through, particularly through the dietetics, mm. uh, field really has, I mean, it really, I mean, if you look back into the history of that, it's, it's almost religious, yes. religious implications. And there's been a bias from a long time and it's, it's probably really unfounded, you know, and it's, it's, you know, I, I think, uh, uh, what was a fellow Cleve from the UK, the, the, the equivalent of the servant general said, it's just preposterous to think that an ancient food that we've been eating since we've been humans is now responsible for some new diseases, which, you know, if you think about it, this doesn't make sense. So it's good to see I yeah, I would like to just add something. Um, I, I wasn't aware of this until I moved to United States. I lived here and then I started to work in the nutrition field. Uh, the way I grew up is very different than what most people experience today. And I feel like it has the, this early mind programming has a lot to do with our ability to see food, food as fuel, as survival. So it was communism for the first 17 years of my life. Not only we did not have government guidelines, we did not see commercials, food commercials or any commercials on TV. The, the, no school lunches. So who was in charge of what we ate was the mother, the grandmother. So it was traditional wisdom that was passed from generation to generation. We raised, I was lucky enough to, to live in a house. So we, we grown our food and we raised our animals. So the relationship we had with animals, we took care of them, we cleaned them, we feed them. And when it was time, they gave us in return themselves. The, the, my father would kill the animal. We would all eat it. We did not have any conflict because that was survival. And not only that, but in, in that time in communism, we had food ration. Not only we, we didn't have guidelines to tell us what to eat, how much to eat. On the contrary, for people that did not have the possibility to raise their own, to grow or raise their own food, um, living in cities, they, we had cards. I, I'm saying we because I lived through that when I was in high school and I left my parents in, in, um, home. We had the card where each day we would go to the shop with the card and they would mark the portion of bread could have a day. And for the month, we had maybe one liter of oil, which thank God was so little because it was some soy or corbin, some, some bad vegetable oil and certain amount of sugar and certain amount of flour. So when you, when you see, when you grow, like today we are this, like you said, we are disconnected. We are disconnected from where the food comes from, how it's produced, what's the purpose of food for us. And 
And now we have all this as reward. You, oh, you did great in swimming. Let me give you a candy. Oh, you were good today in class. Let me give you a candy. Like you said, you leave the doctor's office. Let me give you a lollipop. And, and for me, it's such a struggle. I have to always add, like be on top of my son to remind him, this is not food, Andre. This is, you know, you're a Ferrari, I tell him. You want to put, what do you put in a Ferrari? You put the best gas. You take care of that car because that's the standard. You don't want to trash your body. So it's, I feel like the biggest work we need to do is to somehow change this food conditioning that, that is so heavily promoted by all the holidays, the reward system, food advertising, the food industry, the food guidelines. All of it makes it impossible for the individual to actually make a choice that serves themselves. They're all, uh, we are succumbing as society to this peer pressure induced by corporations and their agenda. Yeah, you know, what you said is really interesting to me because I think like one of the biggest changes we've seen in the last uh, few decades is just the convenience of the environment to get your hands on things that are just not yeah. good for you, but are like incredibly palpable or, or palatable. Um, I mean, I think about when I was a teacher too, it's like if the kids, if they had a parent who was like really wanting them to eat right and took the time to prepare a meal and send them to school with that, the kid could always just walk across the street to the convenience store and buy all the candy and soda they wanted for a couple of bucks, which even if they didn't have, they could usually round up from one of their classmates if they really, if they really were motivated enough to go around that way. Um, and it, it, so I think it's tough. Like the way I see it, it's like, there's almost kind of a, a crossroads with that where one path is like, well, let's just get rid of it all. So they don't even have that option anymore. And, you know, I think that gets into kind of some, some murky waters just from a, like a grand scheme type of thing in terms of how we go about things in, in general. But then the other side would be just like the level of education too. So the other thing that the component I see missing in the current environment is uh, I think, I think people hear a lot of the kind of like the buzz phrases and the things like, well, don't eat processed food, don't eat junk food. Uh, you know, this is bad for you. But for someone who's 12 years old, it's, it's hard for them, I think, to really recognize that and learn from that because there's not enough of a, like an immediate consequence or not enough of a, like a deep understanding as opposed to a surface level understanding to that. So like the other path on that crossroads, I think, would be just to put a much bigger emphasis on nutrition and what constitutes a good choice versus a bad choice within the education system in the first place. So like these, these are the, the youth are essentially brought up knowing like, oh, well, this thing is, you know, a reasonable food choice. This is a food choice that is going to likely end in a bad, in a bad place down the road if I continue to kind of use it. Uh, and it, it, it's, it's interesting to think about, but it, it's also, I think, a really, really big kind of problem we need to solve that sooner rather than later. Yes. Yeah, it, it's, it begins with educating if you think the school and the hospitals would be places where people would get education on what proper nutrition is, but those two places are failing. The school the is raising money. The school, <laughs> listen to this. Like it, it's beyond me. The school raises money with cereal box caps and Coca-Cola, um, whatever those are, uh, caps, I guess mm -hmm. they're called too. The more of this, the school sends back the, some money they get from those companies it's like how can we change anything if we we want to raise money with uh, by giving our kids junk basically but anyway that gets in a whole other <laughs> <laughs> it gets into the politics of things yeah for sure yes I, and i don't i don't want to go there it's sure just, no it's, it's just not interesting to see to see that it's possible to grow up without food guidelines but at this point is not because nobody is no more traditional ancestral or traditional wisdom that have been passed along is lost. Mm -hmm. So now we have to, to have guidelines, but we need to revise guidelines basically. So it serves the, the population, not uh, some industry behind. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I think one thing that kind of runs parallel with that too, is what you kind of mentioned before too, is we have a disconnect with where our food comes from because of how convenient it is. So I do wonder if like uh, the first step wouldn't be just including more kind of uh, I guess uh, farm to table or earth to table, I guess you could look at it um, type of education where like, so, so kids are seeing like that process firsthand at an early age versus just like, you know, growing up thinking like, Oh, food comes in a box. It just, yes, up from, <laughs> it's kind of like absolutely. the stork, stork delivered the baby, but with the food side of things. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> but, yeah. And I think like in one of my last teaching positions, we had like a setup where everything was kind of project based in the, um, the, the idea was that we would take an idea or an interest and try to tie in as much of the subject matter from like a math standpoint, a reading standpoint, a writing standpoint, a science standpoint into this one topic of interest to the student. Mm-hmm. And I see like if you took food from like its, its very beginnings, like growing it or, you know, catching it, hunting it, whatever, uh, raising it all the way to the dinner plate you know, you can include literally every subject in that very easily. So like, sometimes I wonder if we just need to have some like, like satellite projects with, uh, you know, schools kind of using that as their foundation and then including all those other education components into that model and, and see what the difference would be with those students versus the students going through kind of your more standard educational approach. Wow. That's a brilliant idea. You should definitely... <laughs> write it down and because they have farms you know i'm sure farms would would be able to collect my son was in a school kind of like that was project-based learning and urban farming Mm -hmm. for for in his first grade and uh i loved i loved the the idea of learning by doing and they had the garden they didn't raise animals they had rabbits more for like the fun of it, not for them to eat the rabbits, but mm-hmm. uh, yeah, no, that, I think that is a brilliant idea because when you, when you see the, is the cycle of life, uh, many people, and I, I respect the ethical point, like if for ethical reasons, you choose not to eat animals, they just miss the, uh, I feel like it miss a component that, that the, the cow, uh, it's almost like that. It, it's, purpose like each one has a purpose so in this ecologic cycle that's the purpose of the grazing animal to enrich the soil to contribute to the the health of the planet including and that is uh, being food for humans in this case we are the 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 species above them so it's just um It makes me sad when I realize that um, people lose lose track of this food chain denial. Yeah, <laughs> yes. It's just it's like what's ha- what's happening to us? How how did we get here? But yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Now for a word from our sponsors. This episode of HBO is brought to you by Juve. Juve uses targeted red light therapy to help assist with the changes to light exposure in our modern environment. I've been trying out their desktop model recently and Sean has been using their full body model. I personally love the convenience of the desktop model for when I'm working on coaching plans or editing podcasts and just kind of generally sitting at the computer for long parts of the day. I can just set it and kind of forget it and it'll expose me to that red light therapy. Juve uses a unique Lego block design, so if you start small, you can always add units later to build a bigger model. If you think you might benefit from more red light exposure, check out some of the wide-ranging clinically proven benefits to red light therapy that are focused on things like recovery, sleep, performance, inflammation, etc. If you like what you see, consider Juve's third-party tested Class 2 FDA-registered devices. Their options include door or wall mounts, mobile stands, and even a portable Juve Mini. Head over to juve.com forward slash HPO. That's J-O-O-V-V dot C-O-M forward slash HPO to see Sean's training video. Enter HPO at the checkout for a gift with your purchase. Now back to the show. 
Um, you know, one thing other you mentioned and you also sent over on some of the stuff, cause uh, I mean, when you just look at your background, it, yeah, I wonder like, well, where did she find time to do all that? <laughs> but one of the things you had mentioned was the GAPS diet or the GAPS protocol. For our listeners who aren't as familiar with that, can you explain just kind of like what the, like the basic framework to that is and, and how does, if at all, kind of a animal-based nutrition fit into that? Is there ways you can do it that are more animal nutrition-based versus plant-based or like what's the, the, the I guess, the, the breadth of that sort of a process? I, I love the question. I love the GAPS protocol. I always say it saved my life. If, if I did not come across the GAPS and Dr. Natasha, I would have probably, I don't know what I would have been today. So the GAPS stands for gut and psychology syndrome. And uh, it was developed by Dr. Natasha Campbell McBride. With, she's a neurologist. And um, the premise is if all diseases begin in the gut, if we heal the gut, we can heal the rest of the body. So the the diet itself is based on the specific carbohydrate diet, which by the way, we learn a little bit, maybe we have one or two slides in the medical nutrition therapy about. So specific carbohydrates are um, certain double sugar uh, containing foods that are eliminated from the diet because the body is unable to produce the enzymes to cleave those two sugars. So we eliminate them to allow the, the gut to, to heal. And, and because when these double sugars are not properly broken down and absorbed as single sugar, they end up in the large intestine as food for the bad microbes. So it's all about the balance between the good and bad microbes in the gut, in the large intestine, and the, the gut permeability, hyperpermeability or leaky gut, which uh, probably you are familiar with the term. So the GAPS eliminates those complex carbs like starches, grains, um, most legumes, and allows from like the plant foods, all the non-starchy vegetables, the fruits, the honey as a sweetener, eliminates all processed foods that goes without saying, and heavily brings in animal food products as the nourishing element of the diet the meat and bone stock that is like a gel when it's cold eating skin eating fat that comes with the meat um, collagenous tissues uh, the the joints the bone marrow organ meat those are our powerful superfoods and when we add this to our by eliminating uh, the bad carbs, non-digestible to humans, uh, we give that rest to the gut and ab ability to heal with the meat and bone, I mean the animal foods. So it's having animal foods, low carb, on the low carb spectrum. And a huge component is also, so that's the third one, is the fermented foods. We need to re-inoculate the gut with the good microbes so they can deal with the rest of the plant matter that comes with the diet. Now, the diet has different stages, and interestingly enough, the introduction diet stage one is kind of like on the, uh, close to the carnivore spectrum because it allows for very little fibrous plant, and in many cases, none. Like Dr. Natasha has many cases of children that cannot tolerate any plant matter. They immediately get symptoms, uh, and usually those are in the behavioral um, uh, realm like um, autism and ADD, ADHD, the, uh, those those kind. So uh, that's so by by doing this elimination diet, and usually can go for about two years. That's the idea. You can do this for about two years when you're six months free of symptoms that you know you had previously. Then you can try to go off the GAPS diet and add starches back in fermented grains like you know with the sourdough bread um, things like that personally once I got on the GAPS diet and I started to feel good I, I did not care to have any of the 
the grains or the starches back into my diet. And then from there, you know, ketogenic is just on the spectrum. So I've been, I've been thriving since for the past seven years on GAPS, keto, and most recently carnivore. But it's a very, very powerful nutritional protocol for anyone that has any disease, chronic disease process, whether it's metabolic health, whether it's inflammatory, autoimmune, uh, behavioral, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a part, body is one piece. So anything that's going wrong in your body, uh, you can think that it can originate from the gut. And by addressing gut health, you can address the rest. Yes. Let me just, uh, because you've mentioned the term metabolic health several times, can you, can you clarify what that means to you? Because that, that's, a, that's sort of a vague term and many people may not understand what metabolic health means. I mean, I have my sort of perception of what I think that means. But what, what does that mean to you when you're talking to people, when you're talking about let's improve your metabolic health? How do you, how do you sort of objectively uh, measure that? Define that. A very, very good point. Uh, when I think metabolic health, I'm thinking energy balance. I'm thinking how we get energy, how we store and burn energy. And then as a manifestation of a broken metabolism that has to do with this energy balance, we see obesity, prediabetes, diabetes, cardiovascular disease goes in there, um, as PCOS in women, as, as uh, some of the signs. Like if you get, get this any one of those diagnoses, you can assume that you have a metabolic health issue. In other words, your metabolism, your ability to, to generate energy and store energy is compromised. What you put in your body is not in supportive of a healthy metabolism. Did I answer? Does this match your definition of metabolic health? Yeah, I mean, I think those things are important. I think, you know, I think there's a, an interesting, you know, dichotomy about when we talk about health. And, you know, I think all of us who agree that having a lean physique, you know, not having excess visceral body fat or even subcutaneous body fat is beneficial. I think that, uh, you know, I, I would say that, you know, for me, I mean, having some degree of muscle is important, but I mean, there's people that would, you know, then they would further go on to talk about blood glucose yes. control, stability, um, you know, and, and, and then there's other people will talk about dyslipidemia, blood pressure. And I think one of the, one of the disconnects is, you know, we've been <clears throat> so fat centric and I mean, it's, it's almost like at all costs, we need to, we need to get our cholesterol as low as humanly possible. Now there's medications where we can get our LDL cholesterol down to, you know, below 20 if we want to. I mean, which is just not even, I don't think that's ever been an experience in the human, you know, in the human species ever. And some people are excited by that. They're thinking that you're never going to get heart disease, which very well may be true. Uh, but at the same time, what else are we doing? Are we, are we, are we putting ourselves at six, six extreme risk for, things like dementia and some of these other things that are so or depression or other things that are associated with very low levels of cholesterol. But I think, you know, there's a dichotomy of people in the low carb community have kind of gotten into this point where we think that glycemic control, low inflammation, low blood pressure, uh, body composition is metabolic health. And we don't really care so much about the blood lipid component, particularly the LDL total cholesterol component. We're maybe concerned more about triglycerides and to some degree HDL, but you know, we, we, there are, there are a lot of people still have this myopic focus on cholesterol as part of, as part of metabolic health. How do you deal with, I mean, I assume that at least some of your clients, when you put them on a low carb or GAPS diet, a carnivore diet, a keto diet, whatever it may be, may see an elevation in their LDL cholesterol or total cholesterol, you know, and, and maybe the other things get better. I mean, what is your experience with that then? Uh, I always remind people that, in the beginning stages, especially when they change the diet and if they lose rapid weight, we will see an increase in, in uh, total cholesterol, LDL, 
even HDL. But usually we also see a trend down in triglycerides. So uh, I tell them not to panic. It's, it's part of the process. We repeat the, the tests. And I like to do, if they can do the you know, particle size, we look at that. If not, we, we do the ratios of total cholesterol to HDL and uh, to triglycerides. And then I always remind them that cholesterol is just one element of heart disease, of the arterial plaque. It's, we can't take that in isolation from everything else that's happening in the body. It's inflammation, it's insulin, it's uh, homocysteine, is uh, uric acid, is ferritin, is uh, fibrinol. I mean, there's so many aspects that need to take, be taken into account. Um, so I, I don't, um, I don't, I didn't have, at least in my clinical experience, I did not have any hyper responders to, to see like, poof, cholesterol went to 400 and, uh, none of that. So th that's kind of my approach. I remind them that it's, it's multifactorial. We can't just isolate one factor and make all our dietary or lifestyle decisions based on that. Yeah, no, I agree. I think, I think when we look at cardiovascular disease, I mean, we, had, we had Brett Shear and, and Nadir Ali, two cardiologists on the program a while back. And I, I like Brett's uh, well, I mean, I think in general, when we look at the risk factors of cardiovascular, there's many, there's lots of them. And, and while cholesterol is certainly clearly has been one of them, and it per perhaps is, is dependent upon a lot of other things being in place as well. And, and, and unfortunately, many people in society, particularly the United States, have all those things lined up. They tend to be overweight, they tend to have visceral fat, they tend to be inflamed, they tend to have probably vascular endothelial damage. They tend to have unstable blood glucose. And so when you, when you put that combination together, it's a bad thing. But, you know, we don't know what happens when you take all those other factors out and, put, and normalize those. And then, and then maybe the cholesterol is what it's supposed to be. But anyway, um, let me ask you, I mean, you said, you know, when you went on a, a carnivorous diet, I don't know how long you've been doing that, you saw that that finally cured your chronic constipation. That would be consistent with, uh, you know, some of the, there's a study out there that was done by in the Korean literature uh, looking at that, and they showed you know basically the same thing, removing uh, fiber is the only thing that really helped well. Have you noticed any other benefits uh, besides just that? Is that? What has been your experience overall? Yes, I am tracking uh, some few other things that I had not resolved. I have dyshydrosis, which... I believe it's an autoimmune condition. It's an unknown cause, the skin condition, which I always had flare up since vet school. That was the first time stress induced on my, my um, fingers, on my hands, and on my feet. And that seems to go away. So I have not had... So I've been starting carnivore since November last year. So pretty soon I'm going to have one year. And like I said, it's not 100% strict, but I do go long bouts of time where I go very strict and then I'm, I'm a little bit more flexible about it. But that seems to go away. Hair is not falling. I used to have quite a bit of amount of um, hair fall. And I would tell you, before I start carnivore, I was rather conservative on protein. I would have maybe 50 grams of protein a day, more on the low end of the spectrum for recommendations and lots of vegetables. Um, so ever since I flipped that, since about, um, I would say, January, maybe April, I notice less hair. When I wash my hair, less comes false, basically. Um, of course, my energy is good, which is, is being good, um, especially since the, the low carb. What else I've noticed? Those are, and, and my one thing that I'm monitoring, which I wish the gums would grow back, is my gum health. In, the, in my family, we have a predisposition for gum disease. So again, since my 20s, I've been on top of it, not to lose my teeth. My gum is super healthy, but I have quite a, a good amount of gum recession. And I've been told to do gum graft on my uh, lower uh, teeth, which I've been resisting since I was 
nursing my son. So what's that? Eight plus. So, so in the eight years range. So I'm just keeping an eye on it. It's good. So it's, um, I have healthy gums. Um, but I don't know. Maybe they'll grow back. <laughs> wishful thinking. Gums don't grow back, at least not to what I've, I'm aware of. Actually, um, I would say that many people have seen a resolution really? of their gum recession. On, on, so it might take time. So that does occur. And, and we do see, uh, uh, you know, and I've talked to a number of dentists and we've had, we had dentists on and they will say that people on not necessarily a plant-based diet, but a diet that's high in sugar, that's high in, uh, you know, in, in some plants, uh, we'll see greater incidence of just general poor dental health, particularly gum gum health. And I've seen, I cannot tell you how many people I've seen that have been on carnivore diets where their gum health has gotten significantly better. So I don't know if it's going to happen for you, but I mean, it's certainly plausible and possible. I know that for me, it helped too. I, mean, I remember going to the dentist, even going from a regular diet to a ketogenic diet, and they were just like really impressed at the mm-hmm. gum because they were, they were starting to hint at, you know, maybe we're going to need to do a gum, uh, you know, gum restoration procedure on you at some mm. point. And all talk of that went away and they're just like, your teeth are great. There's nothing wrong. So I, I, you, I think you can. I, I think you can. I'm, I'm observing. And I, to talk about the plant-based, when I was raw vegan, that's when I lost mo- a lot of gum, which went hand in hand with bone loss. And my, uh, because I remember I, they, they, I had this radio, radiography and they said, you have to do a bone graft and a gum I'm like, oh my God, no way, I can't do all that. So that I just I ramp up my my oral hygiene, and then of course, since eating like incorporating animal foods back in the diet, it was like miraculous. I was having postpartum depression, but now uh, it was like past the the blues. My husband. <laughs> kept saying maybe you should go see a psychiatrist i'm like no way i'm not gonna see a psychiatrist this will go away anyway so just when i started to eat the fat and and some of the animal proteins because after 10 years of not eating animal flesh i was kind of reluctant to the idea but i would take in the concentrate that came from like making the soup it's like something lifted off my brain i could i felt myself again it was very interesting very interesting not to say the gut like just not being so bloated and gassy and then since eliminating all plants like gut is heaven it's like i cannot describe the feeling the lightness not feeling that inner pressure and like a barrel that you always carry in the i used to feel when i was carrying in my belly with all the fiber that it's just like having a rock in a in a, in a big bag that doesn't move <laughs> so now it makes sense but um um you know the the wisdom comes with uh, time and with experimentation so <laughs> yes Yeah, I mean, that, that's a common thing. A lot of people uh, comment on the absence of gut dissension, bloating, discomfort. And, you know, I, I amazing. You know, I, I, it shocks me that I see people out there and I'm involved in social media. I'll get people and, and, I, and usually it's women who are talking about, you know, embrace the bloat. Bloating is normal. Gut discomfort is normal. You know, we're supposed to be this way. It's a perfectly normal and acceptable thing. And, you know, you just need to live with it. And, and I, I, I disagree with that. I, I don't think our digestion should be painful. I don't think our digestion mm-hmm. should be uncomfortable. I mean, you wouldn't accept that if it was your breathing, you know, if you're short of breath or wheezing or coughing or had pain when you breathe, you, you would think that's completely abnormal. You'd see the doctor and the same thing with if you had chest pain or if you have knee pain when you walk. I mean, these things, yeah. we're not supposed to be in a space state of discomfort or pain. And if there, if we are, mm-hmm. you know, with, when it comes to the gut, it's either the gut is damaged or the food is wrong. One of those two things is occurring. And uh, if you normalize it and accept it, you know, we have the same thing about fat acceptance and normalizing Mm -hmm. obesity and normalizing mental health and normal. These things are not normal. And it's something that the, you know, the pharmaceutical companies love because they can say, well, you you know, it's normal. Just take a pill. It's good. You know, just keep doing what you're doing. Take your pills, you know, and, and everything's great. And I think the, 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 the more people that wake up to this and stop accepting that, the yes. better off we're going to be. And again, there's uh, billions of dollars in advertising dollars that, that don't yeah. want us to do that. Right. <laughs> it's, it's good to see that, that you know, some people are, are waking up to this fact. And, it, and it's a very simple experiment to do. And it's not 
uh, you know, why not take a month or two or three out of your life and, and figure this mm -hmm. stuff out? I mean, what's the downside? I agree. And I love how you bring all those points out. Normal. What is normal? We have to redefine normal because 80% of what's happening today, I would say is not normal. And then if we take our normal to the jungle that has no contact with the outside world, we would be totally unnormal. So uh, saying that something is normal is just a, a um, reason for one not to, to take action. Yeah, it's scary to go against the grain, everybody to look at you like you're the weirdo, but you know what? I'm okay to be the weirdo because I want to feel good age beautifully, be able to do all the things I enjoy now at 47 when I'm 87, if I'm to live that long. That's my driving factor. Not, uh, I don't know, what someone thinks is normal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, uh, I think we'd all three agree on that. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that's it's what, what's driving, what's the driving force? That's why it's important to ask people, what is your why? And what are you willing to do, be, so you can have that? <laughs> mm -hmm. Awesome. Well, Mahila, would, uh, if there's something else you want to chat about that we haven't covered, we can certainly dive in, but we also want to be respectful of your time too. So, uh, if you want to share where folks can find you on social media, website and books and things like that, you can also feel free to do that too. Thank you. Thank you. First, I, I, am grateful for your time, both of your time. Uh, I am active on Facebook and Instagram. I do have a YouTube channel. Um, my website is growing weeds. I haven't been posting anything on my website, but if people go to my website, mihailatelecan.com, they have all the icons to my social media. So I guess that would be the easiest way to, to get to my social media channels, uh, which are healingwithfoods.org, uh, whatever, healingwithfoods on Facebook. <laughs> That's awesome. the name of my... <laughs> and uh, yes, I do have a book, which... Funny enough, it's called Make Peace with Fat because that was the, the biggest thing I had to always help people get over that fat is bad and, and understand that no, you know, carbs are worse than the fat that we removed. So the book is called Make Peace with Fat and it's on Amazon, both in Kindle as well as uh, paperback. Excellent. Well, we will link to your website and your social media handles in the show notes Thank too. Thank you. I appreciate it. This was great. Very awesome. Mahalo. Thanks for coming on. Appreciate it. Love the perspective. Uh, wish you well. Uh, and, Thank uh, you. This will probably be out in a couple of weeks or so, Zach, I think. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, yes. Uh, awesome. I look forward doing. to sharing it. Yeah, Thank you. And keep doing the, the awesome job you're doing. There. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. Thanks. All right, Jack. I guess we're on this one. Hey, folks. Human Performance Outliers podcast is growing. And due to the growth, we are looking to take on some new sponsors. So if you feel like your company or organization would be a good fit for our audience, please do not hesitate to reach out to hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.